Today's reading is John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. Thank you, Maya, for that wonderful reading. There's a church in France called the Cathedral of St. Lazarus, Vautoun. It was completed in the 12th century, and above its western door is a, a massive sculpted image of the last judgment, that final moment when all human beings will give account of ourselves to God. At its center is Jesus Christ, the judge. He looks out beyond you at the setting sun as if to say, we will meet face to face when the sun sets on human history. At his feet are men and women who are coming up from the graves, awaiting judgment. Some look hopeful, others are contorted or terrified. One man screams as a demon pulls him up into hell. I don't know if you can see that, it's terrifying. At Christ's right hand is a crowd of saints. Angels are helping them into heaven and heaven is depicted as a mansion with many rooms. But at Christ's left hand, souls hang in the balance. Here, the archangel Michael and a demon are struggling over souls, and those people look absolutely terrified as they're cast into hell. The inscription below them translates, May this terror terrify those whom earthly error binds. For the horror of these images here, in this manner, truly depicts what will be. But that's not what you expected to hear this morning. <laughs> We're in a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Today we've come to the line, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So what is judgment? There's a way of imagining judgment as a horror story like that cathedral. It's a sense that hell is in fact a fate to fear. It's a future of darkness, loneliness, weeping, and death. I remember as a teenager, I went to a church on Halloween that instead of having a haunted house, transformed itself into a journey through hell. And I remember going through these hallways and people were in cells crying out about how lonely they were. And at the end of it, we received these pamphlets that told us how we could believe in Jesus and escape hell. Well, I was already a believer, so, uh, so I now knew it was my job to help others escape hell. Uh, so that's a way of thinking about judgment as a horror story. It's a nightmare that only Christians are going to escape. But that's not 
the only way we're inclined to think about judgment. That cathedral in France I was just talking about, that massive image of the Last Judgment, well, that church in 1770 was renovated. The renovators didn't really like that image of judgment. They were French, it was the Enlightenment, there was a lot of optimism about humanity and human reason, a lot of suspicion about the church, so they just, they, they plastered over the image. Uh, they covered it up. And um, the head of Jesus, the judge that people used to look at and, and be afraid of, they, it, was, it stuck out too far for the plaster to cover well, so they chiseled off the head of Jesus, stashed it away in the church. There's, there's got to be a metaphor in there, right? <laughs> I think it's a metaphor for our religious history in the West. At some point, the judgment of God just lost credibility. It seemed no longer to be relevant or it's too superstitious or something. So we plastered over it. We're now more inclined to think that what really matters is what we think of God, not what God thinks of us. In other words, we've come to believe that God is below us. We know what we do like about God. We know what we don't like about God. We've come to regard ourselves as God's judges. So, I wonder where you find yourself when you say this line, he will come to judge the living and the dead. What do you feel? He will come to judge the living and the dead. Is it terror? Is it apathy? Do you tremble when you say it, or do you shrug? Which is right? Either you believe that judgment is a horror story that should fill you and everyone you know with genuine fear, or you sort of ignore it, overlook it, plaster over it. So which is it? What's the truth? Well, I think that God's judgment is not meant to be feared. I think it's not meant to be forgotten. On the one hand, I'm concerned that imagining the Last Judgment as a horror story just misses the mark. At the very least, it's not even close to the whole story. And it misses the mood. Judgment is not about fear. Yes, the New Testament would have us believe that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Yes, there are some fearful words about judgment in the New Testament. And yes, there is a frightful possibility that a human being will finally say, no to the God who made her or made him. And the names given to that no are darkness and weeping and death. Even so, I would challenge you to find a single place in the New Testament where fear of judgment is used as a tactic for evangelism. I just don't see it. The gospel is not a threat. Salvation is not based in fear. Here's why. The good news is that God raised Jesus from the dead and somehow made that act our salvation. Salvation means there's nothing left for us to fear. You could almost sum up all of Christian ethics with one commandment. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We don't need to be afraid because Jesus Christ himself went into the depths of weeping, of darkness, of death, and he lifted us with him out of all of it to eternal life. 
At the end of the day, God's judgment is not bad news. Actually, sometimes in Scripture, we find a longing for God's judgment. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 96. I remember reading this at one point and being so shocked by the turn at the end of it. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. And here's the reason. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. For he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. So in this psalm, judgment, God's judgment is creation's gladness. The mood of judgment is joy. So how can we say that final judgment is just a horror story? It just doesn't make sense to me. So that's one concern, but on the other hand, I have another concern. I don't want Christians to forget that we live under the judgment of God. I think we lose something vital to Christian faith if we just plaster over God's judgment. Uh, the fearsome, wonderful judgment of God is always with us. It means what I do with my body matters. God will raise it. What I do with my words matters. God hears them. God is above me. God speaks to me from a height. God has the final word about the truth and character of my life. If I forget that, I forget that God is God. I'd be inclined to make myself a judge. And Christians can be judgmental people in the worst sense of the word, right? So can others. I take that as a sign that we've forgotten that judgment is the Lord's. Judgment belongs to God, and that's good news. It means the one that I've come to trust the most, the one that I've come to trust the most is the one who has the final word, is the one who will judge the living and the dead. So I don't want you to fear judgment. I also don't want you to forget judgment. Judgment is not meant to strike terror, but we also need to remember that he will come to judge the living and the dead. So if I'm neither fearful nor forgetful, how do I respond to God's judgment? And here's where we get help from Scripture. Uh, so if you would open a Bible to John chapter 3, to the text we heard read this morning, John 3, 16. I can't say all there is to say about judgment. Uh, we'll just look at John 3 and a little bit of 1 John, and they don't say all there is to say. Uh, there's a point in Paul I find comforting. I found it comforting as I prepared this sermon. He's um, in this long argument, and he just comes to the end of what he can say about God, and he turns to praise. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unknowable his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments. When we turn to Scripture to read about God's judgment, we do well to remember we don't read the Bible to master God. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. Okay. So, uh, so we're going to look at what John 3 says, and uh, we need to pay attention to the unique way it speaks to us. Uh, so here's the first point. John, God sends Jesus to save the world, not to judge it. 
God's intention, God's purpose for us, for you, is salvation, not judgment. God wants you to experience the fullness of life. It's what the Gospel of John calls eternal life. It's inextinguishable life, imperishable life. God wants you to have this life because God loves you. We see this in the text. Verse 16, how God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus Christ his only son so that we won't die, that we'll be saved through him, that we'll have life through him. But then we come to verse 17, which says this, for God did not send his, world, his son into the world in order to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Notice the contrast, not this but that. Notice how the contrast focuses on God's purpose, on why God sent his son. God sent his son to save the world, not to judge it. Okay, so this, um, this probably sounds pretty familiar to a lot of you. Maybe it's too familiar. Maybe what you're hearing me say or what you're hearing John say that John is not saying is this. God sends Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, and if we accept Jesus by belief, our sins are forgiven, and if we reject Jesus, we're condemned along with our sins. Those who believe in Jesus go to heaven, and those who don't go to hell. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's not what's going on here in this text. The first thing to notice is John says nothing about sin. There's nothing about sin here. The next thing is that heaven and hell aren't mentioned anywhere. What we do get is this language of life and death. So let's, let's look at these two sentences afresh together. What do they actually say? What do they tell us about salvation and judgment? So I've lined them up here. There's a parallel I want you to see. Um, and that's that salvation and judgment are matters of life and death. So notice how salvation and life are almost synonymous. God gave his son so that whoever trusts will have eternal life. That's the result of it. God sent his son to the world to save it through him. Salvation and life mean the same thing. Salvation is life. Then we get here that judgment and death are near synonyms as well. By the way, your translations might say condemn or condemnation. Uh, the same word can be translated as judgment or condemnation. I'm saying judgment for the sake of consistency. All right. Uh, okay, so judgment and death are near synonyms. God gave his son so that whoever trusts will not die. God did not send his son to judge the world. And so... In this context, judgment and death are synonyms. They mean the same thing, and so do salvation and life. Salvation and judgment are matters of life and death. And this suggests to me that when God looked at the world that he so loved, its condition was that it was dying. It was under death's judgment. The world that God loved was passing away. And so God intervenes. God gives a son so that the world would not be lost forever, but that we would become fully alive. That's John 3.16. God sends his son not to judge the world as dead, so that nothing is left to be done for the world in God's love. God sends his son to a dying world to be delivered to life. That's John 317. 
And here we get to the point of faith and trust in verse 18. What role do faith and trust play? Look at verse 18. Whoever trusts in him is not judged, but whoever does not trust is already judged because he or she has not trusted in the name of the only Son of God. Uh, you can read this and think it's trust that saves us, but our trust is not what saves us. Faith does not save us. If I think my, safe, my faith saves me, then I think that I've saved myself. God alone saves. Faith is God's way of joining us to the life of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of threat. It's not a matter of believe or else. It's not turn or burn, trust or combust, praise or blaze, <laughs> get saved or get microwaved, let God's love in or go in the oven, accept the Holy Ghost or roast. It's not anything like that. It's not a threat. It's not a threat. The key word to notice in John 3.18 is already. The condition we're already in is death. We're under death's judgment. The world is dying. We are bound to die. We know that. We know that painful reality. Faith is about locating us in the river of divine life that flows from God through Jesus to us. That's what faith is. Salvation is a matter of life and death. Because God gives Jesus Christ to deliver us from death's judgment into God's own life, it's no longer true that you are bound to death. You are born into God's own life, imperishable life. In Jesus Christ, God's life has become yours. God's will for you is salvation not judgment. Are you with me? This is important. All right. So if that's true, can we forget about God's judgment after all? <laughs> can we forget about the line, he will come to judge the living and the dead? Well, no. John 3 twists and turns, and it's really confusing, actually. But it brings us to the second point. Look at John 3.19. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So, okay, let's try to get this straight. God did not send his son to judge the world, but then Jesus' coming is itself a judgment. What? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So what gives? The incarnation is a judgment? How do we make sense of that? The light has come. Well, it helps me to notice that the language changes at this point in the passage. Jesus is now spoken of with the metaphor of light. And in the Gospel of John, light is connected to life. That resonates with what came before. God sent Jesus to give us life. Light also exposes Light reveals what's hidden. What is true comes to light in Jesus. And here's where we begin to see the connection between judgment 
and the light coming into the world. Uh, judgment reveals what's true, reveals the truth about us. Uh, think of it this way. Jesus was fully human. Jesus was God's way of being human. Jesus shows us true humanity. He reveals the truth about humanity. To put it negatively, Jesus reveals all the untruth that's in us. When we look at Jesus, we discover the contrast between what we were made to be and what we are. We look at Jesus and discover the contrast between what we were made to be and what we are. And that's judgment. The truth is told about us. The light has come. Here I see true God and true humanity. Then I see myself. I see all the wrong and meanness in me. See all the ways that I'm not true to what God made me to be. Perhaps I'd prefer to stay in the dark. I can't see how what's wrong in me can bear that kind of light. So we're confronted by a decision. I can stay right where I am in the darkness. I can overlook the needs of my neighbors. I can try to ignore the death-dealing ways of the world that I'm complicit in. I can deny the death that awaits me in a reckless pursuit of security. Or I can come to Jesus and face the light. Another name for the judgment that light brings is conversion, transformation. It's not death's judgment, it's the light's judgment. It transforms us, it changes us, makes us true. And that's what I want. I want to be transformed. I want to be found out so that I can be found in Christ. I want the life of Jesus to be found in me. I see that in others. <laughs> I see it here among you. Sometimes that's called holiness, the life of God being found in you. I was just reading about this medieval theologian and church leader from the 11th century named Anselm of Canterbury. What a life. The king wanted him to take resources from the poor in order to fund military expeditions. Anselm wouldn't do it. He said he wouldn't take anything from the poor. This was the 11th century. The king could have literally went medieval on him. <laughs> but Anselm was convinced that what the king wanted was not true to what God wanted, not true to what God made humanity for. So he took a risk to practice love for people. He said no to power to protect those with little power. And this way of life came from Anselm's encounter with God's truth. One theologian, Rowan Williams, sums up what Anselm thought about God that made this kind of holiness in his life possible. He says this, what Anselm sees is a humanity trapped in untruthfulness. We cannot honor God in the simple sense that we cannot allow God to be God in our lives. And so, we cannot allow ourselves to be ourselves. So it is that sin 
can be seen as a deadly deficit of truthfulness, a deadly deficit of truthfulness. I think that's what the Gospel of John is getting at when it talks about darkness, the darkness that we're in. But in Jesus, humanity has at last done what it has been created to do. And so a relation of truthfulness is at last restored. Our nature has been made capable of reflecting God's. That's the end of the quote. The light has come. The light that exposes the darkness and untruth in us also turns out to adopt us as its children. We come to know and live the truth that is in Jesus. As John's gospel says in verse 21 of chapter 3, whoever does what is true, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, that her works, have been carried out in God. Your way in the world is now capable of echoing God's way in the world. You've come into a truthfulness about what human life is that frees you for love. So we can't forget God's judgment because the light has come. And the Apostles' Creed helps us remember that it is Jesus Christ who will judge us. That is the he, and he will judge the living and the dead. It's Jesus Christ, the one who is truly human and truly God, the one who loved us to the point of suffering, is the one who judges us. That judgment brings transformation toward love, toward truth, toward life, if you will let it. So the first point was God sends Jesus to save the world, not to judge it, but then Jesus' coming is itself a judgment somehow because it transforms us toward true humanity. That's the second point, and here's the third. In the end, judgment comes back to the love of God. That's why you don't need to be afraid of it. You know that sentence, perfect love casts out fear. It's from one of the letters of John. It's 1 John 4.18. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. It's toward the end of the Bible. Perfect love casts out fear. What you might have forgotten about this popular sentence in the Bible is that it's dealing with fear of God's judgment. In 4.17, John says, the love of God has reached its goal with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There's judgment. Because just as the Son is, so too are we in this world. That's us echoing God's way in the world. Nothing fearsome is in this love, but love that has reached its goal casts out fear, because fear has its own agony. We don't have to be afraid of judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. But here's the thing with that. Once perfect love casts out fear, then you have perfect love to deal with. It's like getting a cat to drive out rats. The perfect cat will get rid of the rats, but then you still have a cat to live with. It's not just that fear is driven out, now you have love to live with. It can feel unbearable, intolerable even. Because God's love is in the process of making us what we were made to be. So in that sense, judgment comes back to the love of God. 
God's judgment and God's love are not so different from each other. This is difficult to grasp. It's difficult to say, too. Uh, I, I don't know of any way to say it better than George Herbert, who is a poet from the 17th century. He wrote a poem called Love Three. It reads as a dialogue between the poet, which is I, uh, myself, I didn't write it, but that's, the poet is myself and God. So, so God appears in the poem under the name Love. The poem captures for me the way that God's perfect love casts out fear. It's a love that both redeems me and exposes me. So again, the poem is a dialogue. It goes back and forth between my voice and love's. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, oh my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. With God, I find myself completely and utterly loved. But God's love knows me completely. And what's not true in me wants to draw back, wants to hide. But God's love keeps trying to reach its goal with me, to stay with me until I find myself staying with God's love, surrounded by God's love. And there's no way to be loved by God without turning toward others with that same kind of love. As the Son is, so also are we in the world. So then it turns out that the love that we have for each other is a sign that God's love is reaching its goal with us. And even the imperfect love we have for each other can be a hard reality to bear. A few weekends ago, I was sitting with a dear friend over coffee. It'd be the last retreat that we led together. We talked a few times over the weekend about that, about how significant the time and the memories we'd shared together over the years had been, about how surreal it was that the time was quickly coming to a close. And my friend was saying about, he was telling me he was really upset and sad about it because I've become a dear person to him as, as he has to me as well. And so we're sitting at coffee and at some point the conversation just fell silent and he just looked at me. It was like 15 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And I knew in that moment, he was wearing sunglasses, <laughs> but I knew in that moment I was under love's sight. And I grimaced. I went like this. 
It was difficult to bear, but it was exactly right. It was love, it was truth. It's the kind of love that each one of us owes to each other and that each one of us must bear to receive from each other. So in the end, all judgment comes back to the love of God, the love of God that will stop at nothing to reach its goal with us. God's love is the reason we cannot fear judgment. It's also the reason we can't forget it. The light has come. Love bids you welcome. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to the Grace Long Beach podcast. For more information about our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org.